Well, uh, one of the lessons that I have learned from um, a woman that I talked about um, some years ago by the name of Amy Carmichael that I want to convey to you um, is a lesson on um, learning the difference or being self-aware enough to know what things feed your soul versus what things um, deplete your soul. That was one of the lessons she learned early on was that to, to embrace those things in life, and she was a passionate follower of Jesus and a, and a missionary to India, and she was a um, voracious uh, reader and worker for the gospel. And, and one of the things that she did in her life, and I think it's a key to maturity, is being able to, to know those things in your life that build you up and those things that tear you down. The things that, she said, give you spiritual strength and the things that leak out that spiritual strength. And knowing the difference and embracing the one and letting the other go. That has been a lesson that, that, that I have taken with me, and um, what she meant by that, just to be clear, because I want somebody to have a misconception, she wasn't saying that you should avoid the things that exhaust you physically or emotionally if they're the things the Lord wants you to do. To love people, to love people in the world, and to serve the world is oftentimes going to leave us emotionally and physically depleted. It's hard sometimes to love. We're not supposed to stay away from that. Actually, um, if we are living out the will of the Lord and we are emotionally and physically exhausted, there will be, ironically enough, a feeding in the soul of knowing you're in the right place doing the right thing. That's Jesus in John chapter 4 when his disciples come. He's physically hungry and, and he says, you know what? My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. There's a fullness, there's a filling that happens when we actually do the work of the Lord in, in his will. So I'm not talking about um, the kind of action, loving action that depletes us physically or emotionally. We're talking about those things which decrease or take away from the power of our communion with God. All right, that's what we're talking about. And to know those things that feed your soul. Like for me, one of those things, and I think this is pretty universal, universal to people, um, because we're made in his image and we're made to be a part of this creation, is going out into creation and, and, uh, and saturating my soul in God's glory, you know? Um, I don't get to do it enough. Surrounded by concrete, driveways, cars, pollution, um, drywall, fake lights. And, uh, but, boy, I, you know, just a couple weeks ago, um, just had this little brief moment, two days, me and my family went up to... Nash, uh, Lassen Volcanic National Park. That's a hard one for me to say. Lassen, Mount Lassen, you know, it's like a volcano in the northern end of California. Never really spent any time there, but we went there. And there's this place uh, in the middle. It's actually in the belly of an old volcano. And I just I was standing there with my family. My daughter's doing cartwheels. And, and I'm just looking around. And, and they tell us, geologists tell us, that, that we were standing in the belly of a volcano and the whole top blew off. And all you can see are the peaks that used to be the sides. There's one called Broke Off Mountain. Not to be confused with Broke Back Mountain. Very, very different. <laughs> And you're, I'm standing, you know, in there, and we're seeing these peaks all around. It's still like a, um, a geologically active place. I mean, there's geysers and, and fumaroles and mud pots, and it's right there. It's like three and a half miles away. You got to go. And I was thinking, man, Lord, you broke the mountain. Like, it blew the top off this thing, the power of this. And, and just being there has a sense of you just kind of soak in the glory of God's creation and you sense his power and his magnificence through what he created and what he's done. And that refreshes me. And I think that probably refreshes most of you too, which means you got to get out more, even if it's just a, a walk in uh, Rockville Park. Uh, but I'll tell you that there's, there, there's something that, that um, 
there's something that feeds my soul more than that. And, uh, and that is when I have those unhurried moments with the Lord, with this. And he brings the truth of who Jesus really is home to my heart. The truth of all that Jesus is home through this by the Spirit to my heart. And those moments when you have that hushed sense of awe in your heart, and you're like, wow. And it's a worship moment. Um, those moments to me are the moments that take away my fears and my anxieties. It puts me back in my place, puts God in his place, and I am able to find a place of peace and rest. Because that, that communication of what, who Jesus is, who God is, communicated through this to my soul is what I find my refuge and strength in. All right? And, and I want us this morning to, if the Spirit allows I want us to experience um, a fresh apprehension of who Jesus is. And I'm praying the Spirit of God will not just make it information, but take who he is and through the Scripture to impress it right here. That's what I'm praying for this morning. That's what's what I want in my own soul, and I pray happens. And to do that, I want to direct you to another name. And I'm going to tell you that this name uh, really... Um, on the surface, it's, it's, it's unattractive, it's vanilla, uh, just made up of ordinary words. I could think of a thousand more, majest, more majestic titles than this, but, but it's simply this, son of man. Son of man. Very ordinary words. But when Jesus uses that title to refer to himself, he's implying, denoting, saying something profoundly amazing and nothing short of awesome about himself. So I want to take that name, which doesn't seem like much, Son of Man, and I want to tell you why it's so great from the Scriptures. All right? Um, we're going to do the first part, just Bible study. I'm going to take you to three texts, and I, I want you to work at tracking. It's only going to take 15 minutes to, to go through these three texts and connect them together. 15 minutes, so I know you can track. First one, we're going to start in the New Testament, in the Gospel. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 62. That's where Jesus takes that title and refers to himself as Son of Man. That's Mark. Then we're going to back up 600 years in history and look at two verses from the prophet Daniel, where the title comes from. That's Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Then we're going to skip ahead to Revelation chapter 5, first 10 verses, all right? So we're going to start Gospel of Mark, 1462, back to Daniel 7, and forward to Revelation 5. And I'm hoping... I'm praying that that scripture the Lord will use to give you a fresh understanding, apprehension of who Jesus is. So, start with the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Now, I've got to imagine the scene, okay? Put yourself there. Jesus is standing before the Jewish high court. They finally managed to seize him. He is within 24 hours of his death. He's within 24 hours of completing the whole purpose of his coming. I mean, it, it, is, it is the evening before his death. It's the evening before Good Friday. And they are trying to make some kind of accusation stick that's worthy of killing him for. And he is a huge, has become a massive threat. He's won the crowds. His influence has, has grown exponentially. The crowds are gathering at the temple and listening to him, and they have to take him out. And they're trying to figure out how. 
course, they have a betrayer. They get him. They seize him. They have him right in front. They bring in witnesses who bring false testimony. And the whole time, uh, amazingly enough, Jesus, it, the text says, is silent. He just stands there. They're saying all of these things that are untrue about him, and, and Jesus just stands there silent, doesn't respond. Like you and I would have been, I didn't say that, you know, reacting. He doesn't do any of that. And as a side note, a very important um, theme in the Gospel of Mark is how secret Jesus is about his identity. Like when he starts asking his disciples, hey, who do you say that I am? And, and uh, the disciples say, uh, well, you're the Christ. Immediately after that, he says, shh, don't tell anybody. It's like this great secrecy theme. Like Jesus has been very hush-hush about who he really is. So here he is, court, within 24 hours of his death. He's on trial. And um, finally, after these uh, false witnesses don't work out, the high priest looks right at Jesus, and he says to him or asks him this question. He says, are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed. Notice Blessed is capitalized. It's another name for God. Are you the Christ, Son of the Blessed? Point blank. Tell me right now. Are you the Messiah? And, uh, and at this point, uh, Jesus is going to break silence. He's been silent up to this point. He's going to break silence. And the words that are about to come out of his mouth are open, clear, emphatic, potent, and as far as his life goes, deadly. Listen to his response to this direct question, are you the Christ? Jesus responds, he says, I am. In the original, that is utterly emphatic, egoimi, I am. And you will see the Son of Man, there's the title, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In one sense, he affirms emphatically, yes, I am, but then he doesn't go on to say, yes, I am the Christ. He, he uses a different title to define himself. That is, you will see the Son of Man, there it is, seated at the right hand of power, there's another capitalized word for God, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, in a the, in the Jewish way of thinking, their Messiah was going to be somebody who would come deliver Israel. And when Jesus responds with this phrase, son of man, he's implying a whole lot more than just a deliverer of Israel. There's such a massive import into those three words. And the people who are listening to him know what he's talking about. They get it. Because look how they respond. It creates a, a, a situation in which the high priest, he tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all unanimously condemned him as deserving of death. Let me just read over that. Wait a second now. The Son of Man is such a provocative phrase that it leads them to instantaneous unanimous condemnation to the point of executing him. That means there's something about this name that rattles our cage. There's something about what it means. So what does it mean? It obviously got their attention. He's going to die less than 24 hours later because of using it. Okay, that was Mark 16, 
14.62. Now, let's back up to where that phrase comes from. All right? Track with me. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel prophesied some five or 600 years before Jesus was ever born. But in his, in his book, God gives him a series of visions. And one of those visions was the conquest of the nations and judgment of the nations by one who is on the throne. That's chapter 7. Thrones are set up. The Ancient of Days takes a seat. Ancient of Days is another name for God. And the idea is that the power and dominion of the nations is going to be stripped from them. It's a, it's a judgment chapter and, I think, a salvation chapter. Um, and in the middle of this vision, this is what Daniel sees and what he writes to us. Listen to this or read it behind me. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Back up to Mark chapter 14, verse 62, you realize Jesus is quoting this passage. When he says, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. And from now on, you'll see the son of man sitting at the side of power, right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. There it is right there. That's what he's quoting. Verse 13. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, the one who's on the throne, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that sh uh, shall not be destroyed. In calling himself the son of man and quoting that passage... He is pulling all of this text into his own self-identity. I mean, the Son of Man, the picture is this, this, this one like the Son of Man is riding on clouds, approaching the Ancient of Days on the throne, and this one Ancient of Days confers upon the Son of Man all authority. That's the picture. And Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. But let's just kind of break that out maybe a little bit more, just so you kind of sense it in terms of, um, breaking it out. Um, when he refers to himself as the Son of Man coming in the clouds, he implies quite clearly, Jesus, that he is more than just a man. More than just a man for, for two reasons. That is, the Son of Man implies divinity. One is that frequently in the Old Testament, the prophets and the, and the psalm writers would speak of Yahweh, the great, one and only God, the most high, um, riding on the clouds like a chariot. Or he led his people with a cloud through the wilderness. Um, or he shrouds himself with clouds. That's, a, that's an image of divinity. And uh, here the Son of Man is riding on the clouds, coming up to the Ancient of Days. That is not coming down to earth, but in this passage, he's coming up to the throne. In addition to the fact that his his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. It's eternal. That shows his eternal um, nature. So the Son of Man implies that Jesus is more, the Son of Man is more than just a man. Standing in that court before those people is nothing less than the God-man Jesus Christ. Two, the other thing that it clearly imp implies is that to this man, Son of Man means or implies that he has or will be given universal Authority, universal in scope. That's verse 14. Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Not just over the Jewish nation, but all nations. 
So think about that again. Mark chapter 14, he's standing there and he says, I couldn't think of a better, more potent answer. From now on, you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. I'm not only more than a man, I'm divine, but I'm, I, I'm to me, all universal authority has been given by God himself. This is God the Son approaching God the Father and receiving all authority. Third, that his kingdom or his reign or his rule will be an eternal dominion. Point two there speaks of the scope of his authority. Point three there speaks of the duration of his authority. That is to say, his dominion is an everlasting one, means it never ends, uh, which will not pass away in his kingdom, but one that shall not be destroyed by any other party. In other words, the Son of Man will never be voted out of office. There will never be a coup. There will never be a stronger force that overtakes him. His reign is supreme. His reign is eternal. Uh, long after, long after the stars and stripes disappear in history, his kingdom will last forever and ever and ever and ever. Contrary to popular belief, I think John Philip Sousa was wrong. The stars and stripes will not endure forever. And I don't say that to be unpatriotic. I say that simply because way too many people make an idolatry out of our nation. We need to recognize the kingdom of God stands forever, the kingdom of the United States for a limited time. And to recognize one is eternal, one is temporal. So you have these, these three things that are, that are, you know, back to that courtroom scene. Jesus breaks the silence and he says, I am. And from now on, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven, implying that he's divine, that he exercises universal authority and eternal dominion. You know, ironically, he's standing in the court of men who will condemn him and, 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 and they will kill him. And someday those very same men will stand in his court. It's going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be, you know, four little tiny walls. I mean, it's going to be in the presence of, 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 uh, of heaven and earth, celestial and terrestrial. And they're going to stand before him in court. But at this moment, he submits and allows himself to be killed. Mark chapter 14, verse 62 and following. So there you have the kind of three things that this name implies, the Son of Man. It's pretty big. But I want to draw your attention to a fourth thing. And this doesn't come from Daniel chapter 7, it comes from Revelation chapter 5. And that is the ground or the cause, um, the means by which he establishes his rule. All right? That's Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 couple of quick comments. You'll notice when we read these first 10 voices, there are a lot of similarities between Revelation 5 and Daniel chapter 7. That's because John, when, who wrote Revelation, based his vision on Daniel's. So there's a, a, a connection there. He finds his basis in that, in that Old Testament book. Um, in addition to the fact that I think he is talking about, these two visions are talking about the same thing from two different perspectives and two different time periods, one before Jesus came and the other after he came. Now, as I read this, these first 10 verses, I want you to think about what we heard read in Daniel of, of one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days on the throne and the Ancient of Days on the throne conferring upon him this universal supreme authority. 
because you're going to see in the same basic blocks in this text. Listen or read behind me. John speaking. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll with, uh, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Pause for a quick comment. We get all freaked out because of all the symbolism in Revelation. Actually, I think what it talks about here is quite simple. The scroll is basically the book of history, redemptive history. And to one person, this scroll with seven seals is going to be given, one person who's worthy enough. And as those seven seals are opened, redemptive history is brought to its conclusion in both salvation and judgment. I mean, that's the rest of the book, salvation, judgment. In other words, the person who holds the scroll in his hands and has the power and authority to undo its seals is the one who is sovereign over history, bringing it to a, He's exercising authority over the end, bringing it about to its just, climactic, glorious conclusion. End comment. Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll uh, and its seven seals. And notice the fact that he conquered makes him qualified to open the scroll. Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Verse 7, and he went and took the scroll. So he went, approached, came near, you know, took the scroll out of the hand who was him who was uh, on the throne, seated on the throne. And then verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, you know, the transference of that authority to bring history to a close, um, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. The end of the chapter will tell us the entire population of heaven will do the same thing. And they sang a new song, saying, and their song is to the second person, right directly to the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. One thing I love about this chapter is that it, it takes Daniel 7 and makes it even bigger. In Daniel 7, the, the scope of, of the authority and supremacy of Jesus was largely related to the nations and kingdoms. But in this chapter, you see all of heaven itself. And a voice is calling out, hey, who's worthy to exercise this kind of authority? Bring history to a close. And no one's found. Not on earth. The best man on earth. Noah, Daniel, Isaiah, Moses maybe. Paul, Peter, James, John, Billy Graham, <laughs> no one. But it says no one in heaven or earth, which means there wasn't any angelic celestial being who was qualified. There's, there's a cherubim disqualified. You can't even look at it. Seraphim, you can't look at it either. 
Four living creatures around the throne, praising God day and night. They're not worthy to look into the scroll. Not even Gabriel, good old Gabriel, or Michael, the archangel. No one is worthy enough, except one. One, and that is the Son of Man, the Lamb that was slain, and the one who has that phone. Thank you, that worked out really well. Only one. That just gives you a sense, you see, that he stands head and shoulders, infinitely above both realms. Obviously not over that one, but over both realms. Supreme, high, no one worthy but him. And then he tells us why. Why is he worthy? And on what basis does he build his kingdom? And that brings us to the cross. That it's the cross that makes the Son of Man worthy of that supremacy. That supreme worship. That adoration. I mean, that's contained in the song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain. You were slaughtered. And by your blood, you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. These are the nations that are a part of his kingdom. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That is, he has formed his kingdom in his own blood. The Son of Man has conquered his kingdom by his blood. Now, that is so abnormal, unique, and praiseworthy. Nearly every empire that's ruled this planet has gained its superiority and supremacy through the blood of the poor, the slaves, and those who were conscripted as as soldiers. That is, the the emperor would would bleed everybody else out so that he could have the world by the tail. That's just history. The Son of Man does none of that. He doesn't conquer through the blood of slaves and poor people and conscripted soldiers. He conquers by coming down and bleeding himself. That he lays the foundation for his kingdom, qualifies people to come into it himself. Again, think of the expanse from height to depth to height again. That's why they're singing. That's why he is worthy. He's worthy of ruling and bringing salvation and judgment to its conclusion because he gave his life. It's what makes him worthy. All of that part of this son of man. Son of man. So what are those words supposed to do for us? For you. You're sitting here going, okay, that's, I just saw a picture. And I hope it's more than just a picture. I, I hope it's an apprehension of the glory of God communicated through the scripture to our hearts. But let me articulate a couple ways that it should impact us. Like, if that's true, and you're here, so unless you're a closet atheist, I'm assuming you believe it. If it's true, and if it's real, and he holds all of that, then it really should create within us a holy fear of his power and glory. 
an awe, a reverence. The times in which Daniel wrote and Revelation was written were written in times of upheaval, antagonism, and persecution. And when those times come, and I've said it before, they're coming to us. When those times come, the temptation is to be afraid, to bite our fingernails and say, well, we're the victims. (laughs) And to become anxious and fearful and, and to compromise because of the pressures of of, of, of antagonism and hostility. And there's only one way to displace the fear of men, and that is to replace it with a holy fear of God. We don't like to talk about the fear of God because the last generation was so frightened by him that they, they had a bad misconception of who God is. God is not to be feared because he's mean. He is to be feared because he's God. That's why. And, uh, and the pendulum somehow needs to come back where, you know, when we talk about God, there's a holy fear of of him. There's a sense in which our hearts do tremble before him. So we're not talking about the president of the United States. We're talking about somebody a gazillion times greater, you know? Maybe you've been to Washington, D.C., and it's it's a pretty impressive place, you know, and I was created to do that. It's created to humble people with its columns and its big buildings and its monuments to the men of power and its monuments to, to the powers of military and the sacrifices of military. You go there and you feel, wow, this is awesome. I'm, I'm in the most powerful city on planet Earth. What I want to say to us is um, the power of Washington, D.C. does not even register on the tiny radar or the big radar of heaven. It just doesn't. Um, it's calculated probably the way we might feel about whoever's in leadership at, over the Congo. Do you know who that person is? And if you do, you're really smart. Chances are you're like, ah, who cares what happens in the Congo? I mean, we should. We tend to be self-centered as Americans, but right, chances are you don't know because it's a third world country. Nobody really knows about it. Well, you know what? That's Washington, D.C. in heaven. Well, who's, who's, who's in power? And I'm being facetious here, you know, and God knows who's in power. He's not impressed by it. It doesn't take away or add to anything he's doing. He's like, ah, move on. I got my stuff to do, and I'm going to accomplish it through you. That's power, you know? That's the lamb who's on the throne. That's the son of man who sits at the right hand. That's, he wields that authority. He is unlocking those seals. At a whisper, he brings nations to, to dust. At a, at a mere wish, he can send waves over countries. So you just see the, the, the sheer power of who he is and, who he, um, and, his, and his supremacy should just create within us a sense, this is my God, this is my Lord, and it's not something to mess with. On the flip side of that is another response that we should also have, and that is um, we should find strength in it. That's a, the people in the Old Testament found strength in Yahweh, who's on the throne. We find strength in the fact that our Jesus, Son of Man, is on the throne. The Lamb who died for us loves us is the one who holds all of that weight, and that should create strength to persevere, whether that's persevering against hostility or persevering through personal pain and being true to the mission. That is, we conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And we conquer because we know who's on the throne, and we don't have to be afraid of it. We know he holds the seals with a simple flick, and he, he moves things forward. He's written the last chapter. Actually, he's written all the chapters, but he's the one who creates the decisive and climactic end in which we win, they lose. He wins, they lose. Heaven wins, earth loses. At least those who refuse to surrender to his dominion. 
And now, in this particular time, what we're trying to do is, is we're trying to say, listen, the simple gospel is this. Christ reigns right now. And he has, in an act of unbelievable grace, given his life to give you an opportunity to enter his dominion. One that is filled with life and joy and service and peace at expense to himself. But that window someday is going to close when the Son of Man returns. It's going to be a day of blessing for those of us who believe and rise to see that day when he comes back in the clouds. And a day of judgment for those who have resisted his rule. Um, the whole image of Jesus weak and emaciated on the cross with a little loincloth, that's not the image that will be seen when the Son of Man returns. Uh, earthquakes, skies go dark, it's, you know, a scary place. We should find strength in the fact that he's on the throne to persevere and be true to our mission. Um, that's, that's what the vision, the fresh apprehension of who Christ is, that's what it should do in our hearts. And last but not certainly least, is, it's just the, the response of joyful worship of his worthiness. This chapter is about worship. Joyful worship of his worthiness. It's, if the Spirit in this last few moments has seen fit to give you a place of unhurried space and you have heard, you've seen it in the scripture, and you know it's true, then I pray if you have the Spirit of God in you and there's a new creature life within, I hope that there is a rising sense of uncontainable, spontaneous, joyful, wow, Jesus is worthy. Worship doesn't come from a building. It doesn't come from music. Worship comes from an apprehension of the glory of God in Jesus. And when that happens in the heart, worship is an automatic response. <laughs> You're just like, wow, you're awesome. And that's what the angels are doing in heaven. They, they see him. And I'm, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm being, again, imaginative here, but I'm pretty sure um, the four living creatures and the 24 elders and all the myriad upon myriad of angels, I'm, I'm sure that they looked and they saw God and thought, what in the world are you doing going down into the slums of earth? Seriously, for those people, I wouldn't give a slice of stale bread. But somehow, God in his infinite grace decided to get off his throne. He'd come down to the disgust of a cross to pay what we could not pay so that we could come and enter his glory forever and ever. And I, I think they're just like, wow. And that kind of grace solicits a response in heaven where they sing. This is the end of chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and glory and wealth and riches and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's what it's supposed to do in our hearts. And I hope that's where you draw your source of strength um, from. Uh, it's not going to come from pep talks with each other. We're just like, man, Dan, you can do it. Dan, Dan, he's our man. Get up there and make it happen. That's not going to do anything for me. And it's not going to do anything for you. But I'll tell you what, when the Holy Spirit opens a window where you see and know that he's God and he's on the throne and the Son of Man is ruling, well, then... That builds a sense of confidence, community confidence, communal confidence, and, sin, and, and courage and, and strength. That's, that's where it comes from. Is that where you draw your strength from? 
This morning, are you, are you, are you, are you a worshiper of Christ? Do you have a big vision of him, or are you just comatose? Dead. No responsiveness at all. The cross doesn't solicit even an iota of, of wonder or astonishment. Oh, come to life if that's you. Uh, the truth has sent people to their graves willingly. This truth has sent people into coliseums to be killed by wild animals because they know who's on the throne. It's the Son of Man who loves you and sits on the throne. We take a moment, just let that settle in, what we heard. Just, just a couple seconds of...